Hey, it's Will Actually, and yeah, of course I have a podcast. This is All the King's Voices, and I am broadcasting from here in my mother's basement to mansplain the art of drag kinging to you. Now, if you're listening to the audio, you can head over to YouTube, find King's Voices Pod, and go ahead and hit subscribe. That way you can see the video of all these fabulous kings as well as my gorgeous face. And if you're already watching the video, then why not go find the podcast on whatever podcast device you're listening and hit subscribe there. While you're there, make sure you rate and review. All right, let's meet today's guest. Today's guest is Flair, a.k.a. Flarrington King. Flair is an international drag producer, performer, and documentarian. Having been on the scene since 1995, some of Flair's accomplishments include producing the fabulous Toronto Drag Kings, or the Toronto Drag Kings, from 1998 to 2002, co-producer with Deb Dirk Pierce and Christopher Noel, Toronto's first international drag king show, United Kingdom, in 2002 and 2003, uh, at Buddy's in the Bad Times Theatre, Winner of Mr. Good Handies 2007, producer of World Class Kings for World Pride Toronto 2014, International Drag King Community Extravaganza, or IDKE, steering committee member for eight years from 2001 to 2009, and co-producer and director of a Drag King Extravaganza with Megan uh, Dernick, a documentary about Drag Kings and IDKE distributed by Frameline Studios. Flair is known for twisting gender norms by mixing drag and burlesque in provocative performances. One of the first kings in the world to twirl a tassel and lives in Toronto, Canada. So let's go listen in on our interview. Uh, my name is Flair. I am a drag king from Toronto. And sometimes I also go by Flairington King. But today I'd like you to call me Flair. <laughs> I think I can handle that. Um, well, Flair, thank you so much for coming on All the King's Voices. Um, I'm really interested in how you got started with kinging. Well, it's really my history with kinging kind of goes back to when I was about six years of age, funny enough. And I almost say that I identify as a drag king because of it. I used to perform for my parents uh, to the Oliver musicals, making them call me Oliver. And I would, you know, jump up and do the whole kind of skit and get kind of dressed up in costumes. And in that there was, you know, I'm, uh, I've been performing for a while now. And, and when I was little, you know, being gay was still... Uh, much harder to come out even in Canada and even though I was a little kid and it's not that I knew I was gay necessarily I just knew that I really loved to play with both sides of the idea of gender even when I was little like I was like I want to be a boy but I would also do Madonna material girl like I just like dressing up and performing for my parents yeah um, it wasn't until I came out came out of the closet when I was 21 years of age and I signed up for a drag king contest well I was asked by the producer if I would join the drag king contest with her because uh, nobody else had signed up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I was in a small town at the time called, well, not, I should take that back. It's not really small. It's quite big. But I was in a smaller town than, say, Toronto. I was in a northern town called Thunder Bay Okay. for college. And the producer of this drag night uh, competition was like, I'm the only one in it who's doing male impersonation slash drag king. Everybody else is drag queens, would you do it? And I don't, I don't know how to describe the feeling that came over me, but I was like, that I, I was like, yes, like a hundred percent. Yes. I will totally try it. Uh, and, and that's what just started me. The moment I got on stage and did it the first time I was hooked. What, um, if you don't mind my asking, what year was that? 
1995. That's awesome. Okay, so and so it was a it was an overall like it was just a drag competition, not a drag king contest, right? Yeah, in Thunder Bay, there was only one gay bar at the time in 1995 called the Boda, and it was the only restaurant that had opened its doors to the gay community there. Okay. So both, all genders had to use that space. Even within that, though, like a lot of the times people kind of divided themselves within the bar themselves, which Mm -hmm. I found very interesting. But I come out with the gay guys in my college class. So that's how I found out about the bar in the first place. (laughs) Um, And so I would have been going to the bar with them. And uh, and I guess they had drag queens, but I had never seen a drag king. I didn't even know what a drag king was. I at that time in 1995, I had never heard of one before. Yeah, Uh, but I was pretty quick to understand what it meant when she said that there was drag queens but no drag kings so I signed I said yes to my friend and did it. <laughs> the rest was history yeah yeah so can you tell me a little bit about that like first experience as dressing up as a king like what what did you do how did you perform how did you understand what it meant to be a king well in that base moment because I didn't have any guidance necessarily um the producer who is my competition uh at the same time and I unfortunately cannot remember her name it is one of those life histories where I just can't remember but uh she was pretty femme naturally in her identity like she identified as femme and she was already kind of telling me what she was doing which like was a Charlie Chaplin style of drag okay and she she kind of did give me at least a little bit of guidance and uh, essentially said, pick a, a male uh, that you really like, that, you you know, a male musician you really like. That's what she tipped me on. So I thought about my coming out story. I had just recently come out, I, again, like I said, with gay men. And I really loved George Michael. I loved George Michael. I always, I always did. And... I thought that Faith, his song Faith, resonated with the idea of coming out. And George wasn't publicly out in 1995. Okay. So I thought I would take it upon myself to use that. Because I, I also felt like I could sense in George the same struggle. Like, I think we all kind of <laughs> know once you've come out, you can start to spot some of the other gay icons or gay people out there in the world. And so I did Faith, and how I did him was I came out as a very macho, stancing male in that way, and I broke down within the song of Faith how, even within that, I'm using good language now because I have better language now because I'm older, obviously, and have been in the scene. Yeah. But the toxic male, like I came out as that toxic kind of male, and strip that away to reveal that actually that was coming from a place of inner homophobia and fear Mm -hmm. and that actually I'm going to be a happy, proud person. And I, instead of stripping, stripping, I did a transformation from a toxic masculine person to a gay masculine person and came out. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Like rainbow beads, you know, like a rainbow (laughs) necklace. from under which in my time was like the hallmark of how you knew somebody in northern Canada (laughs) on your side with the necklaces and pins and so I took a necklace out and and the crowd went crazy I because again the audience was also a great a gay crowd mixed there for a drag show and it related to everybody everybody was like yay rejoice in the idea of coming out yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I, I find it so interesting that so much of like 
early kinging came from like a celebrity impersonation place as opposed to like, I feel like today, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like a lot of uh, newer kings come from a place of like playing with makeup or trying to develop their own persona. Um, but just from what I understand, like that basis of having celebrity impersonation and character and a sense of like, uh, community history as well kind of all happened at the same time and then exploded into people being able to create their own personas from there. Just there was definitely people that were in the height of the time of some of the international shows. There was definitely people that were standing out as gender performers in that time, but we'll get to that part in, I think, a little bit. Of, in a yeah. little bit. But yeah, I actually, there is a reason why... Um, impersonation of celebrities uh, at that time in the 90s into the 2000s was popular and that was because male impersonation was what happened before drag kinging and or the term of I would say we've evolved from male impersonators mm -hmm. and that evolution included going instead of just doing a male impersonation which was normally a dandy or somebody that was of a upper class nature or slash the opposite, the drunk clown. And there was kind of like, that was pretty much it. You were either one or the other. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the impersonation of a classic or cult men in our time was to show that we were going to kind of go into a bit more of a campy style of drag and mm -hmm. a little bit more of a celebrity impersonation. And to take up space a little bit more that way versus what was happening back in the uh, music hall days. Yeah. So um, <laughs> so you mentioned uh, a couple of things. You mentioned gender performance, and you're also talking a little bit about drag king history. So yeah. um, I'd, I'll kind of leave it up to you to which direction you'd like to go first. Um, you know, you clearly have uh, you were around when kinging kind of became what it is today. Um, and now you're doing work in helping kind of catalog drag king history. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then we can kind of talk about gender performance and all of that after. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, in the last couple of years, um, I really started to get into our own history and go past what I had personally experienced. I think maybe because of how long I've actually chosen to stay in the art form. Mm -hmm. um, once you get to, I'm 45 now, just so the viewers can listen in and, and hear what I have to say about getting a little older as a performer as well. There's some great things about it, of course, um, living through it, producing a lot of shows, at least here in Toronto, uh, and experiencing the international scenes that I did while I was uh, also performing and, and producing with my troops. And those experiences, I saw the evolution. So I actually mm -hmm. witnessed what 20 years, 25 years can do to an art form. I've watched a lot of peaks and I've watched a couple of crumbles, right? Yeah. So I knew my personal history because I was there and I knew the history of the international scenes again because I was there, but I didn't know about the scenes before me. Mm -hmm. And I took it upon myself to start reading. I started with a great book called Just uh, One of the Boys uh, by Gillian M. Rogers. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a Christmas gift. And I read through it and I found out about all these male impersonators that started in the UK and then in America in the late 1800s, like 1868 on. Yeah. And when I found out about them, I was like, wow. And then all of us, I was literally reading the book and serendipitously I get a phone call from Ken Vegas from Washington, D.C., who 
was the producer of the DC Kings as well as the Great Big. And mm -hmm. if you don't know what the Great Big was, it was the largest to date international drag king show in the world. And it happened for eight years in Washington, DC. And it was a bridge off of the conference IBKE, which mm -hmm. was the International Drag King Community Extravaganza. Because I had that, I, I was like, and then I started reading. Anyway, sorry, I, I skipped off. So Ken Vegas yeah. contacts me, phone calls me and says, hey, I know you're like, know a lot about history because I've I've I always have definitely at least kept up a little bit with the trends and stuff and, and said that they had gotten together with Moby Dick, who was the person to create the first weekly show, I think in the world, actually. I think, was, I think Moby Dick created the first weekly Drag King show, definitely in New York, but I also think of the world. And they contacted me and said, hey, we're building a website called DragKingHistory.com. Yeah. Do you want to help? And I said, yeah, I totally, of course, I'd love to help. <laughs> So I helped them develop uh, some of their stuff and for their website. I work in legal entertainment, uh, just doing contracts. I'm not a lawyer, but I work in legal entertainment in my day job. And so I was able to help them with some forms of copyright and just, you know, when you're trying to report history and you want to show visuals, all that stuff. So I gave them some of that tips. And I just worked with them about, you know, creating some of their forms and, and getting that up. And now I'm still, of course, a huge promoter of that website. I think it's great that it exists and they're doing a fabulous job uh, collecting our history. And they've gone all the way as far back as, you, as they could. Yeah. 600 AD. And so <laughs> to all the viewers and listeners out there in the world to have a lot of patience with them, it's really a, a two-person team. And they're just starting here and going to keep layering it. And as you find out, as you're doing history research, there is so much. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So I helped out with that, and in doing that, that's given me much more of a broader knowledge regarding um, our own history, and even the history that I thought I remembered, mm -hmm. um, and dates and putting things back in perspective of timelines, and so now I'm trying really, 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 really hard to get timelines right. It's complicated with our fragmented history, and mm -hmm. our history is fragmented because of the cre when we boomed in the 2000s, the internet and stuff wasn't really around, so mm -hmm. it wasn't really recorded. Right. It wasn't really kept necessarily. Like, I'd have to go through bins of um, stuff to scan it to share with you guys now, and I think what happens is we're we're busy. Now, maybe yeah. now's a good time <laughs> if you have a scanner at home. Just kidding. <laughs> Got a scanner at home, or maybe I should—I look like the part A. Hey, I—I come to your floor to sell you a scanner. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Record your history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, pandemic scanning—it—that's a thing, I guess, right? That could be a thing. <laughs> yeah, but that is—that's so fascinating. That's so much of. Uh, you know, like the the very specific contemporary history of kings is just—it's—it's it's in you know flyers and you know, ticket stubs and, and people remembering what happened because they're, and, you know, and Polaroids, right. And things like that. Um, there really just isn't the, the record and the hashtag and everything that we have right now. Right. That's it. And I think that's where there's the disconnect because, mm -hmm. um, you have to really look and you have to be somebody who wants to find it. Right. You have to look and find it. And even looking, you can't, you can't just skim over, you might not get the right information. And even some, like, you know, people that are even interested in sharing, like myself, it's like, it's always good to kind of question and try and look up if you're really interested on your own. But 
again, somewhere like resources like the website drakinghistory.com should help you out. And Ken and Osomo are very good at responding if you have questions. Yeah. So, um, so tell me a little bit more about your drag king history. So, you know, you, you have your, your debut, you go, you, you're, you're out, you're a king, you're, you're on stage, then what? So there's one bar, right? There's one venue in the area. Uh, how did you translate that into performing since 1995? Well, you know, I don't know if I was living in some kind of destined path, I swear you not, but what ended <laughs> up happening is, um, after I did that first performance, even though I loved it, and uh, and, it, and it definitely struck something in my inner child, for sure, I, I felt alive again in a way. I, I came out again. Being Flair was this experience, and I was Flair even in that first competition because Flair has been my nickname all throughout college, so I actually oh, okay. was Flair before I was even out of the closet. But um, so, so Flair's been with me for a while, but I moved to Vancouver, B.C. from Thunder Bay, Ontario, and I ended up living in a house with Casey. And Casey just happened to be producing a Drag King show. It just was a, it just <laughs> happened to be. So Casey said, hey, uh, of course, talk to me pretty quickly. I mean, when you're roommates, you find out quite a bit about one another pretty fast and um, so before the month was done of moving to Vancouver I was already in a monthly show that was run by Casey. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah it was a real trip and so Casey really shaped me. I think that um, you know and I termed my drag daddy. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't just in performance it was in producing as well. So Casey uh, you know it was a it was a monthly show <laughs> and it was open to anybody. If anybody wanted to try drag, they felt it was very important to have an open door because we didn't have a lot of stages or experience or like we we just weren't known about. There wasn't really that many gay bars in Vancouver either. Mm -hmm. uh, space has always been an issue for, hmm, how do I explain this? Uh, spaces are predominantly run by men because men control the wealth. Mm -hmm. Pretty simple, right? If yeah. you control the wealth, you control the ability to purchase space or rent or lease space. And therefore, women, trans, and non-binary identified people tend to own less space. Right. Right. So, and that's why sometimes people think, well, why don't dry kings get as much visibility? That's part of the reason. That is part of the reason. It's part of wealth distribution and hierarchical, patriarchal world that we live in. Anyway, I'm getting political. So, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um so, yeah, so there they were performing at a bar called The Lotus, mm -hmm. and Lotus Hotel I found out only recently by doing an article for the Canadian Theatre Review uh, and doing my extra research that actually The Lotus Hotel, which is where I started really doing drag, has been home to male impersonators and drag kings since 1979. Oh, wow. Okay. Very yeah. cool. And so they've had waves of different drag king troops um, go through there, and then they kind of closed down, and then they kind of resurfaced. But it's it was one of the only places in Vancouver at the time, and I performed in with them for one year before I moved back to Toronto. And when I say shape, the reason why I say shape is that Casey really didn't. You didn't have to play that toxic man. Mm. It wasn't their point of the show. The show was to kind of to be uh, for using language of the time, not saying lesbians, 
you know, because not everybody identified as lesbian, but at the time, yeah. the concept was it was a lesbian space for lesbians to come in and perform for one another and have a good time. Sure. So if you wanted to come in and try it, come in and try it. If you wanted, if you were, you know, Casey didn't ask you how you identified or anything like that. It was really just an open spot. And then there was a few of us that were regulars. So I was like, that's really cool. I really like that Casey was so open um, to each pe- person bringing their own story. Yeah. So I brought that with me forever. I've never changed that feeling. And when I moved to Toronto in 1997, I, uh, I, you know, got my place and right away went looking for a drag king show to be in. (laughs) I wasn't thinking of producing at that time. I was just thinking kind of like when I moved to Vancouver, I wasn't thinking I was necessarily even going to go looking for another, for drag kings to perform with. It just happened Mm -hmm. when I arrived in Toronto the group that had been here before me had just disbanded. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? And I talked to one of the performers from that troupe named Deb Dirk Pierce. And they said, uh, you know, that they would like to still do drag too. And so I, I went, okay. And I went to this place called Buddies and Bad Times Theater. It's the North America's longest queer running theater mm-hmm. and asked if I could produce a show. And they said, uh, yes, if you promise to get at least six performers and have an hour long show, you can have it. And I was like, oh, my God, because they didn't think I would be able to find six drag kings. Sure. In Toronto in 1997. Well, I had already had Dirk. So I felt uh, because I had Dirk and myself, I'm like, that's only four more. Yeah. I just put up posters and I found uh, a drag king who was performing here in Toronto named Christopher Noel, who had won a competition called Miss Tango's as a male impersonator. And they actually told me recently that when they saw my sign up looking for drag kings, that was the first time they actually went, I'm one. I'm a drag king. Oh, cool. Cool, right? Because yeah. they had a male impersonator before. So that shows the timeline a little bit regarding language seeping into our community that 95, 97 was um, people were starting to call themselves drag kings. And when I had spoken with a performer who did start in 1978, they did refer them to themselves as male impersonator until the 90s. Oh, wow. So just to kind of give it some concept. Yeah. Um, so I started producing a show and I, uh, well, we produced the one show. Christopher Noel was in it and Deb Dirk Pierce and then a couple of other people signed up as well from the posters. And I begged a friend of mine who was an incredible dancer to, to be in it as well because I had only had like five and I was like, I need one more. <laughs> I need one more. So I begged them. Like, I was like, please, you're a very good dancer and you're super cute. Please be in my show. And they said yes. And they ended up doing drag for years and years and years, which was great. That's awesome. Named- yeah, Mitch. So um, we lasted for four years, and uh, at my troupe, it was the uh, the Toronto Drag Kings. We were originally called the Fabulous Toronto Drag Kings, and then just dropped Fabulous and just kept the Toronto Drag Kings. And we had a really great history, uh, us and the troupe before us, the Greater Toronto Drag Kings Society, which Dirk was in. They, the uh, our two troops, we did really well. Like we ended up in major newspapers, magazines, television shows all across Canada. So we got a lot of attention. Yeah, um, we you know, on Maury Povich, the my troop, like, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of a weird clink to fame, but yeah. it's not. It's also really embarrassing. <laughs> um, but I ended up being on Maury Povich along with Dirk and Jesse from Jesse James Bondage from Toronto. 
with dread, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Fudgy Futage, Della Grace Volcano, mm-hmm. um, uh, Cooper, who was on the cover of the Drag King book. So there was like this group of us that were actually Lizarachi from New York. <laughs> like there was this group of us who ended up actually keep like going on and still making quite a bit of Drag King history. Yeah. We were all there in 2000 on the Marie Povich show. Wow. <laughs> now, my history is pretty long, so I'm going to try and, and, and sum it up a little faster. But so yeah, I did that great. So. for four years. And we, uh, the big thing that changed my drag career was in 1999, I brought the fabulous Toronto Drag Kings with me. Uh, well, we came as a group, but I discovered IDKE. And IDKE uh, is created by a bunch of people. I'll give the call out to his kings and all the, you know, all the wonderful people that created IDKE. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell your listeners what it was because it was truly historic. It was an international drag king community extravaganza, which was a conference. Mm-hmm. The main focus being on academics and presentations as well as giant showcases of performances. So it was like these two worlds combining in an academic way. Uh, it started in Columbus, Ohio in 1999, and it went for 13 years. I believe the last one was in Baltimore, but, um, or Cleveland, so I'm sorry, there's one of the, but anyway, <laughs> uh, 13 years it went on. Wow. And the great thing about this conference and what happened that was very different than now, and I feel like I was very honored and privileged to have been part of this time in Drag King history because it was still to this time, uh, mind-blowing, the performances I saw. Yeah. So because IDKE brought people in from all over the world, there was the first time, the first IDKE, Toronto made up of about uh, just under half of their performances, okay? Wow. we stormed the place. We drove down in two cars. <laughs> Columbus is about five hours away. And we stormed it. Uh, all the performances at that time were solos, predominantly. If you had a duet that was, like, ama- like amazing. And that's where I feel like we are now, which is weird to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's like it went back to the solo artist. Yeah. Huge deal. If you see a group act, it's like, right? Yeah. But that's not what happened with us. It, it started that way, and then it changed because of the limited amount of spots. So mm-hmm. as IDKE grew in popularity and Drag King started to emerge from all different places and different towns and all around the world, yeah. they had to make more room for more people who were attending the conference. Um, this is also kind of what happened with The Great Big, which I just recently mes- just mentioned earlier. And The Great Big um, was inspired by IDKE because you started seeing all these performances that were so amazing and so thoughtful that Ken was inspired and so was I. Uh, I also did an international show uh, with Deb Dirk Pierce and and Christopher Noel. But I just feel like The Great Big has a bit more because it lasted eight years and it really was giant. Like it was giant. so the performances we saw uh, evolve between 1999 to about 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. was all of a sudden people from, say, the same city, Chicago, Baltimore, Toronto, we decided to do group acts versus solo acts because you can't have, we would have been fighting amongst ourselves and we didn't want that. Yeah. Me for a second, looking for something. There we go. 
Let's need that. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, and so instead, Toronto would spend all of our time uh, doing our group act and preparing for our group act. And they ended up being like these Broadway-like acts. Chicago, for sure, was some of the best I've ever seen. Austin, Texas was incredible. And I, mm-hmm. I, I've just never seen anything since like it. Um, literally like Broadway. Like it was like watching something that you would see, you know, in a, in a proper theater. And I thought that we had elevated ourselves to a place that I thought now we're about to get world recognition. Yeah. Um, and we were, we were getting, movies were being made about of us. Movies were being made about us. Academics had a deep focus. And so there was academics that were creating works of literature around us, theses around us. Mm-hmm. Photographers were taking photo series of us. Like it was exploding. So then what happened? Yeah. There's a gap. There's a gap around 2000. And after 2014, things kind of, or it was around then 2000. There's like this time period where all of a sudden drag just kind of went, me. <laughs> kind of went down. And IDKE ended and the Great Big ended. And, um, and productions started to fold under. And what happened was a recession happened. Right. So we had a recession at the same time as social media was starting to develop. So if you had if you had one of these uh, and one of these, like a computer, mm-hmm. you would stay at home and kind of do what we're doing right now. You would talk and you would email and you would message and people stopped going out. Mm. Well, the moment you're in a, you're in a uh, vulnerable space already. Right. It's a woman-owned probably space or a queer-owned space of some kind, right. and it is the first to go. And I'm not wrong. I yeah. was dead right about that. That's what exactly what happened. The spaces went closed up. There was no more spaces. So the drag kings took to whatever venues they could kind of grasp and get their hands on and and perform in. And that was a lot with burlesque. Yeah. Uh, a, lot, a lot of drag kings teamed up with burlesque performers and drag queens. Um, not saying there wasn't that mix before, there always has been, but it just seemed to, that's what happened. And that boom was not as recorded as it is today. So as that time, even though there was performers and people still producing shows in that time, which I really tip my hat or slash crown to that, those people, um, unfortunately that changed our drag king timeline in regards to documenting history mm-hmm. and so now what's happening is performers that have started since around 2014-2015 when Instagram and Facebook and those kind of interactions, social interactions uh, grew and people were able to go look at, look at, I've documented myself, see I'm here well, I don't see anyone else like me, so I must be the first. Well, it's like, <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. You're not the first, um, at all. I was, and I think this might have given me some inspiration because I was there and I lived it. But I'm like, I really want to share with people that our history is really made up of all types of people, just like yourself, mm-hmm. who um, showed an interest in drag, and we are all walks of life. And if anything, I would actually say that the drag kings have been the more diverse form of the drag artists. And because of that, we've led a, a revolution and an evolution around drag to change it into a more non-binary concept where people have more freedom to actually, like you said, come up with their own persona. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that. I think that all the people that I worked with over the years and all the gender fluidity, all the trans activists I worked with over the years, I, I 
want to share that history with people because I want them to be recognized and remembered. And I don't want our history to be erased, especially from our own. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. And I'd love to hear a little bit more, um, kind of about that, just kind of like what it is then that makes a king a king, right? Like what, what is so different or special or fluid or concrete or what, what, what are we (laughs) in your estimation? It's a really great, it's a great (laughs) question. And I wasn't until I kind of wrote it out, um, that I thought about it. I'm like, okay. I would say that a drag king, if you want to use the term, evolved from a, um, let me start that again. I think a drag king evolved from male impersonators. Mm -hmm. So if you think of that as a base, there's a base there, but evolved over the years to incorporate a gender spectrum regarding what sexuality, gender, and attraction is. So a performer in drag really takes those things and tears it apart dismantles it, brings it together in a way to show other people that gender sexuality is fluid and that attraction is in the eye of the beholder. The male impersonation base is important, though, and I think it's important regarding politics, our society, mm-hmm. where, and again, kind of like that connection to space, a very similar idea of what does that mean to take up male space? Mm. The man spanning, right? Like the the male space. And why is that still an issue? And why are we still talking about talking about it? Um, and I think that's the thing. Drag kings attack that from the base. Yeah. Yeah. So we really don't want, from what I understand, if we, even if we're imitating that toxic masculinity, that control, some people do it because they think that's what's sexy because that's what we've been told is sexy, right? We've been told the marble man is sexy. Well, you're right. He also smokes and, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it was a complete dick. Who knows? But don't, please don't be that. I think what happened in the drag circuit was it was almost like that might have been a bit of a start, but it changed at some point and went, no, we don't like that feeling. Why would we perpetuate it? Yeah. When that happened in our drag world, which was in the 90s, when I swear, when in a big part of feminism was happening in the 90s too. So you got to kind of think of lesbian culture and queer culture with drag culture and how they mold together. Yeah. We are the physical representation of those politics. We're performers. We're live performers. We're going to go out there and we're going to do, say, an act about the Gulf War when the Gulf War is happening to talk about those kind of things. Like right now, there's a lot of drag kings that say, do Donald Trump. Why? He's a figure of toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. So people want to break that down. They want to show either it's not why it's wrong and why it's negative and not fulfilling. Um, or they want to do something and, you know, make fun of it. Right. What? Either way, we want to try and break that down. So even though it's so complicated to say, oh, oh, a drag king is a woman who dresses as a man and performs on stage. It's really never was. Even the male impersonators weren't like that because women were denied space. And when you're denied something and you have to take it, you're taking a power position. And for, you know, purpose of this, you know, even phone calls, like, well, I dress in a power position. Yep. I dress in a power position, right? So the male impersonator would dress in that power position in a lot of ways for the working class man. So their audience was targeted towards the working class man to say, you can be powerful too. Right. 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 
So there, even though they were women, they were like, whoa, they were working for the man. Drag kings, we're working for our community. And mm -hmm. so we're a representation now of that community and what it means to be queer. Mm -hmm. I think that a drag king can be anything that you really want. It always kind of has been. The difference between a drag queen is that our base is more in the masculine. Yeah, I think that makes that that's a very good definition. <laughs> um, and yeah, and that's just it is it's so hard and so slippery to define. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned that there's been a lot of like academic papers and things written about kings, especially in the 90s and early 2000s. And as an academic myself, I've had to go out and like read some of those uh, just as I'm, I'm starting to try to figure out where my own voice fits in with that conversation. Um, and one of the things that keeps coming up and the things that I read is that drag kings are boring. Um, and it's like, have you been to a drag king show? Like, at least people the shows I go to. <laughs> because of the society we live in. It's the same type of rhetoric as, say, Trump, right? Mm -hmm. But fake news. It's a, it's a catch phase to bring us down. Right. It's not true. Yeah. I've seen boring drag queens. And yes, I've seen boring drag kings. I've seen boring clowns. I've seen boring magicians. <laughs> I've seen boring singers. I've seen a lot of performers in general who are boring mm -hmm. to me. But guess what? The person next to me doesn't think that person's boring. Yeah. It's still an art form. Don't let anybody tell you drag kinging is boring. Again, based on my experience, I saw Broadway level. Right. I was never bored at an IDKE or a great big. I, and, and I'm not bored. I go to a show now in Toronto and I'm not bored. Even if somebody is brand new, doesn't really know what they're doing, there's something with when somebody has heart and can get up on the stage, that's almost pretty much entertaining enough. Uh, the only time I'm not entertained is if I see somebody didn't really make much of an effort. Right. And I think that's that's what happens is especially if as people were maybe crossing the divide between like male impersonation and kinging and maybe they just kind of didn't know what to do. So they kind of just showed up and dressed as male and that was it. Right. Like that seems to be the main critique is like, well, they dressed as male, but that was <laughs> the performance. Right. But for the most part, most performers know that when you get on stage, you perform. Well, <laughs> context again, in 1995, really? a woman cutting her hair off was a huge deal. Oh, yeah. You got to think of it in context. If somebody's coming out as a male impersonator in 1995 and taking up that space and cutting their hair, they're radical. Like, right. that's impressive. That's shocking. That's interesting right from the get. Well, it's 2020 now. You could have purple streaked hair, hair coming out of your <laughs> nose, and people don't even bad an eye really anymore it's you're not criticized for necessarily being different or standing a ground to show a level of equality does that mean we're getting to a place of equality i hope you know it's not there yet obviously we have a lot of work and inner work to do still in our own communities but i do think that um i've witnessed an evolution in regards to acceptance of what drag means yeah. Oh, for sure. And from uh, from my experience, you know, so I actually started out as a burlesque performer um, and I was performing as a drag queen um, just because I, I I've always felt that I, I 
I used to, from the time that I was about 16 years old, I thought that I was, as I said at the time, and again, language has evolved, right? Like I always felt like a drag queen trapped in a woman's body, right? So trapped in this AFAB body that just didn't feel like, I always felt like I was putting on female as a requirement. Um, so when I started performing burlesque, I felt so uncomfortable performing as myself that I started performing as a queen. Um, and so I, I kind of like developed a lot of the, um, the skills that I have as a, uh, as a like cabaret style type performer, right? I was a theater performer before this, um, through burlesque. And then when I found kinging, and I like felt, even though I'm still in probably the same amount of makeup and costuming and whatever, I feel more genuinely myself as a king than I do as a queen. Um, I was able to kind of like translate that and just take it and run with it and, and build on it. Um, so it's been really interesting to kind of see people coming to king performance from different angles as well. You know, um, I have friends who are burlesque performers who suddenly started kinging. I've got friends who are acrobats who were like, you know, it'd be cool if I did this with a mustache. Um, (laughs) you know, um, it's just, it's, it's really, it's, it's been a very interesting experience having started only about, uh, kinging three years ago and, uh, burlesque five years ago at this point, maybe, maybe more. No, five. Yeah. Something like that. So you're in the new wave. I am in the new wave. I know. (laughs) Um, It's been great to watch. I think that you just said something really interesting to me, which is this kind of like exploration of yourself through drag mm -hmm. Um, in a a bit of a different way. Because it's like, well, if you can take the gender out of your drag, what is your story? Yeah. And, And see, when you're like, well, for me as a bodied person, I didn't feel quite right doing burlesque the way you were doing it and if people don't know what the art of the tees that's what burlesque is it's like a art of the tees mm-hmm. and if you're not feeling good about that that will throw your performance off because you're you're supposed to be kind of drawing that attraction in a particular way yeah um and i think that it's great that you kind of switch that up because that's part of what the new drag is is to allow and that's why the hashtag all drag ballad has been created because there is a wave and what's nice about that is with all waves that means no one's alone in the thought of that so when people tell you what they think drag is and that you have to be in this box um or it's boring or anything like that like well you know it's it's all valid it we're we're in a very interesting we're in a we're still in an oppressed community we still have situations come up in our world where like trans people in the united states have been now asked not to perform service for their country um which is insane but it goes back to some politics and i'm going to share something with you really quick so in the 19 after the 1920s boom with the male impersonators and that's when vesta tilly uh was really at her heightened time Mm -hmm. um Uh, Well, she ended around 1920, but at that time when it was doing its own peak, some politics came into place in the United States uh, under McCarthyism, and people started to get focused in on and attacked for their clothing that they were literally wearing. Now, when something like this happens in politics, you go from literally being a celebrity, like somebody who was a musical celebrity, like that was your career, you got paid do it you were on billboards you were used to sell smokes you were the mar- you were the marble man to being arrested for wearing a fedora and a tie i'd be arrested right now right right the way that i look 
because I'm female in a suit. And it was also the other way around, of course. Men couldn't men couldn't wear dresses. Mm-hmm. Well, through a period of, like, I think that went on for almost 30 years, like right into the 80s, and then you kind of head into, you're heading into my time, right? So it was a very short period of time. But boy, did that politics, those politics affected our our mentality um, and our well-being around gender yeah. and drag. So we have to be very careful. Yes, we have a lot of freedom. We're in a situation right now, which is, of course, very different for most people out there. And unfortunately, the United States has somebody who had thought a lot of toxic masculinity running things. This doesn't create a lot of hope. Yeah. Sometimes in the performance world, especially, you know, sometimes with someone like me who's seen those arches and I'm like, I just want to see things get better. I don't want to see things get worse um, for people. I want people to have the ability to express themselves freely. This (laughs) is important to me. I, I'm still working on that equality train. That's something that I've been want, striving for since I started. And I think that that was the revelation as a drag king. Oh, my God, we're not equal. Yeah. Women are not treated equally. How do I take that stage and tell those stories to bring awareness around it so that we are, uh, we get to that place? And when you draw the attention of people who are filmmakers academics and photographers they record our history they record our time i wouldn't have known about those male impersonators if people hadn't done that um and so that's again why i want to share now especially now yeah yeah like that's that's one of the things that i'm hoping you know especially seeing as there's like we're starting to creep back into visibility, right? You know, you have Hugo in New Zealand and Landon here and like, there's- Oh, and that big show that's about to happen, even though it's online, do you know about it? Oh, is it the the online drag show that they're doing on, what is it? Yeah, Landon has brought in um, people from all over the world. There's Adam Ault's gonna be there. Yeah, yeah. Canada's gonna be there. There's a whole bunch. um, uh, Anyway, there's a huge lineup. So that's April 2nd. yeah, that should help a little bit. Like Landon, Hugo, uh, television kind of incorporating us in. And that is a lot of, to do with, again, and it gives some kudos out here to somewhere like the Austin International Drag Festival. Mm-hmm. So when you think of somewhere like that, who has Camp Winnikiki as well as the yeah. Boulay Brothers and had them participate at the Drag Festival and the Austin International Drag Festival from its inception highlighted drag kings and hi- headlined them. Mm-hmm. When you do something like that, and you have the producers and the organizers and committee bring, and there was um, Eaton from Austin, Texas, was part of IDKE. So that, see that influence yeah. comes to Austin, which then flows out. And what happens is then it's like, oh, the Boulay brothers go, of course we'd want drag kings on our show. Right, right, exactly. Because you can see, like, I know, I always I always struggle with this a whole, like, the thing about visibility for vil- visibility's sake. It's like, we cheer about visibility, but it's like, what do you do with that visibility, right? Like, what does that visibility then go on to create or allow or open up? And I think that's the stuff that we have to focus on, right? So Yeah, and I think that's part of... Um, Slightly some of my, my, I get sometimes a little annoyed because it's like, well, if you are asking for visibility, but you don't recognize the people that got you there in the first place, no offense, how dare you? <laughs> Amen. Right? Yeah. But no, like if you don't understand how you even have a stage there in the first place, then it's kind of like, well, you're erasing yourself. So you're not going to get the visibility that you're looking for if that's how you're going to be. Um, do you want visibility also by the people like Donald Trump? What kind of visibility do you want? Be very aware of your intention. Things can 
you know, I think some drag kings are experiencing it now where they're like, oh, online is very different than live, huh? Especially regarding <laughs> music use and yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to have to adapt a little bit. But again, to throw like a call out to why um, participating and, and kind of, I, I don't know, like, like someone like Landon mm -hmm. and Hugo um, and B Boris. Boris is also going to be in this show, which is really exciting. So we've yeah. got three main drag kings who are on the first real reality TV series, uh, all going to be on this show together on April 2nd. What's really got cool about Landon um, and why I find that Landon's such a role model in our community, and we're lucky that they're so talented and did so well on, on Dragula. Uh, they won World, by the way. They yeah, won. Spoiler Which, alert. <laughs> uh, I just want to say that. Um, and <laughs> because, boy, when you're not focusing on the drama, can you get work done or what, eh, boys? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, and all the in-betweens, I didn't mean to genderize there. But a call out to Landon, because Landon doesn't have to do an international show. Right. Landon doesn't have to do that. Landon doesn't have to give the visibility to other performers, but they're choosing to. Um, that's their choice, and I think that that's someone who's going to that highlights our community and is going to bring us further visibility. And so I hope people tune in and support that. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, and and when people tune in and you know, money flows in that direction, other people notice, and hopefully that means more opportunities too, right? Yeah. So. And again, I think be mindful of what your intention might be a little bit. I think the crossover that's happening right now and something that's kind of complicated is more business related in a weird way than performance related. In my time, well, people would be like, what the heck is a drag king? That was uh, my whole documentary, the beginning of my documentary I made with Megan Derenek mm -hmm. um, uh, about the history of IDKE. The first bit is, what's a drag king? And I've got all of these college students going, I don't know, is it a drag racer? Is it a drag queen that's got, like, weird shoes on? Like, they don't know what a drag <laughs> king is, right? Um, I don't necessarily think that's quite the case anymore. I think some people in um, still experience that, which must be frustrating. I, uh, but what's changing now is more not what is a drag king, kind of like what you said. Well, what do you do with the visibility that you've got? Yeah. You actually do have the world's attention. You've got a leader of the pack again creating an international show right now. You've also got people like yourself doing, you know, interviewing people that are interested in our history like myself and you've got two really famous kings creating a history website. We have these things in place because we're still innovators and we still want to create things and share things with our community. Yeah. But I have intention. I want to share this because my intention is to educate. My intention is to make sure we do have um, visibility within our own community so that people kind of understand that there's been a lot of success stories mm -hmm. and we have been covered in a lot of different ways because I want people to kind of maybe focus in on their intention and be careful of the fame game. F being famous isn't necessarily what, uh, I mean, but so for some people that's their intention. I, I mean, what sure. can I say? Your intention's yours. You come up with what you want, what matters to you, and then don't judge others. Because some other, some for other people, and and this has always been there. Not all drag kings like are great. Not everybody's a great performer. Sure. Some people need to get up on stage to share a part of them that they're experiencing. Yeah. And that's so important. And uh, there's a Canadian show that's all about that called Drag Heels. 
It's on oh, two seasons now. Have you yeah. seen it? I've, I've heard of it uh, through Instagram <laughs> from the people that I follow. Yeah. 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 So Drag Heels is on OutTV. Um, that's a Canadian thing. It's also, I believe, on Amazon. I do recommend this. The first season is Queens. The second mm-hmm. season is very different. They really evolved. There's definitely different... Within one year, you can see a difference in how the drag changed, which is also really interesting, and the type of people that participated in it. I got to be a guest uh, on the show, and in experiencing that, I got to talk with everybody who was participating in Drag Heels. What they were doing was, it's about you going through an experience of playing with drag to get to a better part of you. Yeah. That's what it's about. It's so touching. Um, and it reminded me of that. It reminded me that someone can get, someone can get up on stage and they're just, they're trying something on and they should be allowed that playing with gender is something that we should all have been doing since we were, we, because it's so much fun. And I also think it's not scary. It makes us better, more rounded people. Yeah, absolutely. And getting to know who you are and like how you feel most comfortable being in the world. Like, when is that a bad thing? It's not. And that's thing, like, can you imagine if you were little? And, and maybe this is where my, I was really lucky again. Um, my parents let me. My parents let me put on a cap and dance around on their coffee table asking for porridge. They let me. Right? Yeah. They didn't stop me. They didn't say, go to your room and go and brush your hair so that you're a pretty princess. Like, they didn't do that to me. They, right. And so I was really lucky to kind of grow up not thinking it was ever wrong. Um, but that is not everybody's story. And I think that most people actually have the opposite story where they're told exactly how they're supposed to act and be in order to be, say, successful or attractive, etc. Well, that's where drag comes in. Yeah. That's not, you can be real ugly in drag. You can go all the way ugly. Look at Dragula. It's all about being a monster. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that, um, that's where it's great. I think that if we were able to start doing that when we were even little kids, if, if the next wave waves of drag kings could bring to the politicians and to the whole policy that, boy, man, actually raising your kids so that if they wanted to wear a dress, a suit, purple stockings and a colored hat in drag play, guess what? It's healthy. It's fun. <laughs> and it gets them to know themselves a little better. I love it. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we're, we're kind of coming up on an hour, um, I just want to ask a little bit, like, can you tell me a little bit more about Flair? Like, who is he when he's on stage or out in the world? Like, what is your persona? What is, what makes you you? <laughs> or Flair Flair? Or well, both of you? Know, the thing is, is, really deep down, I love to tell stories. So Flair is a storyteller. And I will be everything from a leprechaun to a drunk Santa <laughs> to the gayest next door neighbor you've ever had it depends on the song and the story that i want to share with the world and that has changed from personal stories that i've shared i did a coming out story um regarding my body versus my gender this was something that i did a long time ago when i was a teenager i um i just needed to kind of get in touch with my own body yeah and i went through this process of standing in front of the mirror naked until i kind of could really take it in um, I made some promises to myself. Those were my own promises that I did. And so I did an act to that, for example, to One Thing by Finger Eleven, where I actually start on the stage completely naked and I get dressed into a suit and oh, then wow. I take it all off again. But, you know, what would I give up for one thing? Well, the concept of that act is I don't have to give up anything. I actually don't have to give up anything. I can just be me all the yeah. way to bare bones and I'm okay with that. 
that's that act. And then I do Elton John. I, and again, <laughs> I've done a drunk Santa. So my thing is kind of like, who am I performing with? Who am I performing for? Mm-hmm. So I almost custom uh, my acts per, per, per show. I'll actually custom most times. So you don't really know what you're going to get with flair. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think today's Kings, yesterday's Kings or tomorrow's Kings need to know? Well, I hope you do know that I am actually really proud of every single one of you who's ever contributed to this art form, whether it's been through performance producing or academics or any of the art forms. Thank you. I want to say from the bottom of my heart, uh, still participating in it means the world to me. It's definitely half my life. I think if you want to try it, try it. If you don't want to identify yourself as anything, you don't have to. Uh, but have a look at our drag king history. Keep attention to it. And I think that the reason why is because you will notice that throughout our times in the last few years, especially the last 20 years, the gender variance performers and producers out there who have paved the way for the new performers to really just shake it up they did a lot of groundbreaking work mm-hmm. in regards to policies and language that maybe you're not aware of, but I hope that you would learn after listening a little bit about this, that we're out there. Uh, go and have a little touch up on what you know and go forth, young <laughs> kings and old kings alike, go forth and have fun. I, my only thing is just be careful saying that you invented it, you're the first one or you're revitalizing a scene or something like that. It's a little bit like we're racing your own, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Flair, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm going to put links and everything so people can uh, click and find Drag King history, find out more about you. But I, I appreciate you coming on the show in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, you know, thank you very much for having me. I, again, I appreciate that you're doing this work and, uh, you know, a future little performance person who's interested in history is going to grab your thing and go, look what I found. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're all part of this cycle. So thank you so much, Will. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you liked it, why not rate, review, and subscribe wherever you feel like rating, reviewing, and subscribing. If you want to learn more about today's guests, head over to facebook.com slash kingsvoicespod or check out the comments uh, or the description in the YouTube channel, uh, kingsvoicespod. Uh, There I'll post all the links to everything you want to know about today's guest, and you can find them from there. Uh, If you are interested in becoming a guest yourself, then why not shoot me an email at willxuldrag at gmail.com or shoot me a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash kingsvoicespod. All right, so that's it for today. And remember, keep your toxic masculinity to yourself, but share your drag with the world.